Hello, and welcome to the Aquariums Explained podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Joe. In the last few episodes, we've been exploring the process of how to build an aquarium. We talked with Aquarium Technology Limited about what's involved in building tanks, and then we spoke with American Sealants International about forming windows and underwater tunnels. Today, we're looking at aquarium filtration with Al Lewin. Al is the founder and owner of Aquatic Exhibits International, or AEI, a global leader in the design, installation, and maintenance of aquatic filtration for a range of residential and commercial clients, including some of the world's largest zoos and aquariums. If you've ever wondered how zoos and aquariums keep their water so clean, this is the episode for you. Let's get into it. Al, it's great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Great to be here. So... Before we talk about filtration, could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you how did you get into the industry? Who are AEI and, and what do you guys do? Well, uh, my name is uh, Al Lewin. I'm the owner of Aquatic Exhibits International. That's the, uh, the full name of AEI. And what my company does is actually our main thing is we design and build life support systems for aquariums and zoos. So that can encompass anything from small fish up to even mammals, right? But we sometimes also install the whole aquarium, right? From start to finish, turnkey, as you would call it. So in other words, someone comes to us with a a project and we help them develop it, um, procure all the materials and turn it on, even supply the, um, the occupants sometimes very, very infrequently though, but it does happen. And, um, I started as a hobbyist. Um, it was in 2003 is when I jumped over and saw that there was actually a business in the maintenance of people's aquarium. And I've always been a tinkerer my whole life, so I've always tried to do things bigger and better. So I just got one aquarium got bigger, one after another, and then here I am. Now we're doing uh, public aquarium-sized exhibits and water features. So yeah, it's been an interesting winding road to get here. And so the focus, I guess, of this episode is going to be primarily life support. And when I try to explain life support to people that aren't necessarily from the industry, or maybe have never even had, you know, a home aquarium, it literally is what it is. It's, it's a life support sustaining system. And there are, you know, so many different components that go into making that thing work. But could you start off by just giving us a general, I guess, breakdown of what life support is, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper as we continue on with this conversation. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, but it is pretty self-explanatory, right? The title, Life Support Systems, right? But what does that <laughs> right. mean? Um, I tell people it's like the heart and lungs of the aquarium, right? Um, the fish are basically, or animals are in this liquid medium water, Um it's either salt water or fresh water or anything in between. Um, and for, for lack of a better word, the, the fish and the animals, sometimes they go, they defecate and go to the bathroom in the water, right? And you have to take care of those wastes. Um, also, fish respirate in the water. So now you that complicates things even further, right? So now the fish have to breathe in. So, I mean, just picture this. If you went to the bathroom in a room and all that stuff just floated into the air and started mixing into the air all around you. <laughs> it may not sound too appetizing. Huh? So but lovely, lovely image. It's kind of what's happening in an aquarium. And so the life support systems, I usually are usually broken up into mechanical, right? Um, uh, 
um, chemical, right, and biological. It's generally um, the three different areas. Now, you could also start getting into circulation and, you know, water movement because there are certain other um, animals such as corals, right, that need adequate water movement because they're sessile organisms that need current to take nutrients and, and move waste away from themselves. And lighting, right? So that would also be part of life support systems. So, um, so I guess you could look that look at that as five different um, areas, right there. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a great kind of breakdown and general overview of it all. I don't know if you'd like. Maybe we can talk about a little bit about each and some of the components that may entail those different things. Yeah, that's actually what we're gonna jump into next. But I think Joe has a Another question for you right before we get into that, or that might actually tie right into that. Yeah, so so filtration is is obviously quite complex. And anybody that's seen plans or schematics for a, for a life support system will know that there's so many parts involved. So how do you set about designing a, a life support system? You know, how do you go from kind of a blank sheet of paper to a finished design for uh, filtering, you know, a huge ocean tank? Well, generally... You work backwards, right? Is it going to be fish, um, coral, mixed species, you know, fish and coral? So that's usually where you start and you work your way back, right? Um, like, for instance, if you're doing bony fish only, you know, lighting is important. Like, photo period is important and current is, is important as well. But not if you were to include corals, right? Those things would become very paramount to the design. So we would start with the animals, the species. Now you look at the size of the tank, right? The actual ultimate size of the tank. And then you would start looking at turnovers, um, feed rates. Um, these are all things that go into determining what turnovers you might have on a system. Generally, the larger, you, the, larger the aquarium gets, the, the slower the turnover gets. And what I mean by turnover is how many times the tank is process through filtration. Inevitably, the larger the aquarium, the less loaded it can become. So someone's hobbyist tank at home could have quite a few fish in there and they tend to, hobbyists tend to get just one more fish always, every time, right? When you get into like a 100,000 gallon system, if you would basically factor in how many pounds of fish per gallon there is, it would be almost like you might have one fish in your home aquarium if it's comparable. So therefore you don't need as much aggressive filtration. So those are the type of things that go into it. Then budget is another thing too. You know, there's just like cars or just like any other thing in life, you know, there's the premium middle and then there's the, the bargain, you know, and that's, that's, that's the thing that you have to be very careful with is that that low end, you know, where is the edge? Where is that line where it's too little or too much? I, I don't like to generally do that. And I really, ward people away from that so i well i guess you know you design the system for for a certain number of animals and certain size of animals then they get older and they get bigger and you sort of start pushing the limits of what that filtration system can do right right you also have to anticipate what's it going to be in five years or ten years right and there's a lot of rules of thumb to do with some of this um it's not um like aquaculture aquaculture if you're designing and we are actually doing some work in some aquaculture facilities that's a whole different ball game. Um, their actual calculations that 
have to be very accurate um, for feed loading because it's those systems tend to be well, well uh, uh, stocked compared to a, um, an actual public aquarium or zoo. So, yeah, that, that all has to be taken into consideration. So it's really, it starts with the animals, then the size of the tank, and then we work backwards and start determining um, mechanical turnovers, um, biological, um, even the type of food that are fed the fish or the animals can can play an, a role into what type of um, filtration you use. You've mentioned mechanical, chemical, biological filtration a couple of times now. Can you jump in a little bit deeper into what each of those actually is? Well, mechanical is you're basically taking particulates out of the water, right? So right. the easiest thing I think people can relate to, and, and, and it's actually what we do use on a lot of systems are sand filters, right? Basically, your garden variety sand filter to your pool can be used as life support system mechanical filtration. It works very well. That filters out the particulates, right? Right. Biological would be something where it's a medium where bacteria can successfully grow on, you know, or thrive. You know, the, the bacteria we generally work with are aerobic bacteria, right? It means they require oxygen. So they generally want to be in, in, in an environment that has high oxygen and water flow. So again, maybe a hobbyist can relate to like a trickle filter. And we have big trickle filters a lot of times and actually is a great environment for bacteria to grow. Now, I might, might add that bacteria are not, um, they don't grow exactly where you want them to grow. In most tanks, in a hobbyist tank or in a public aquarium tank, the gravel, sand filters, all of these things will grow this bacteria. So it becomes one biologically active system, right? But there are filters you can design that are specifically um, made to cultivate bacteria in, in its best environment. That's biological. And what that does is that breaks down like nitrogenous wastes, things that are byproducts of, of metabolism. And then you have chemical. Chemical can be carbon filtration, right? Or eh, carbon might be more of a, um, it does absorb, but then you have Ozone is a big one, right? We use ozone a lot, which is O3. O3 is extremely, extremely reactive with other compounds. And we utilize it quite a bit in the aquarium industry. So that those are probably three exa good examples of what we use mostly in the aquarium uh, world. So uh, I'd love to explore that biological component a little bit more. Um, you know, they're a huge part of filtration. They're used, of course, in aquariums, but also in... I guess sewage sewage treatment and stuff. Um, they are yes. So, c could you give us a bit of background then? What are these bacteria actually doing? You know how how do they help us in the aquarium industry to sort of break down ammonia? And how resilient are they? You know, are they are they easy to? Uh, well, are they difficult to kill? Are they easy to kill? You know how how well, likely see, it's interesting. When we have a brand new system, right? We can call it relatively sterile. Um, the first one of the first. Um, obstacles that we have to get over is to establish a biological colony, right? And in the beginning, some of these um, bacteria are a little sensitive, right? They can okay. be susceptible to certain things. Um, and so we try to create an environment such as pH, temperature, um, available nutrients that, that are in their favor so that they can cultivate 
and grow rapidly and seed the aquarium or the, or the areas we want them to seed as quickly as possible. Now, normally, if you were just to put some hardy fish in there, and what I mean by hardy fish, there are fish that can handle some of these higher components of metabolism and not die from them. But most fish are very sensitive to it, so you don't, you know. So the old, the old way was you'd put in some real hardy fish like uh, groupers, eels, things like that, and uh, you would let the process happen naturally. Um, you would even inoculate the aquarium possibly from another aquarium that's established. And all you would need to do is take a, you know, a bucket full of gravel or something, sand from another established aquarium, and you know, there'll be enough bacteria in there to start the colony. And then usually it takes, it can take over 30, 30 to 30 to 60 days. You know, I've seen as long as 60 days to establish um, a working colony in there that is um, adequate to support an aquarium with other more sensitive species. Now, getting back to how sensitive, right? Once, once they get established, um, bacteria tend to form what they call biofilms, right? And once a bacteria forms a biofilm, then it can be pretty resilient, right? Even in waste treatment, water treatment, just um, drinking water treatment, um, bacterial films are one of the biggest challenges they have. Even in some of these um, high chlorine chlorinated uh, systems, they've, they've found that there are colonies of bacteria once they form, um, uh, once they form an actual um, slime, like a biofilm, they are difficult to kill, right? So I don't know if that answers that question, but the bacteria are basically in the aquariums. You know, you have ammonia as a byproduct of fish metabolism. You have ammonia, and then that's not uh, depending on your pH. It's, it's um, toxic to fish. And then, so we have a colony of bacteria that'll break down ammonia to nitrite. That's with an I, right? And nitrite are in a, in freshwater. There, it's very toxic in Salt water, it's not quite as toxic. Certain fish do not like it at all. And then there's a, so there's a, a, a strain of bacteria that'll break that down into nitrates, right? Nitrates is kind of like the end product of the normal biological process. And those are fairly harmless to, to most animals. Um, although if you let them um, go unchecked, like just constantly uh, elevate, they can cause other problems too eventually. So there's, so there are ways of dealing with nitrates, and that's either diluting it with water changes, right? Water changes are a good thing anyway because they replace um, trace elements and other things. Um, or you can have a nitrate reactor, right? And what that does is it has another form of bacteria that grow on different media. Um, some people use a sulfur-based media, and that will form nitrogen gas as a as a final byproduct to break down nitrogen, nit nitrates, that is. Okay. I don't know if that's, uh, so the actual bacteria that do this, um, I don't really know their names and uh, the traditional um, strains that they thought were doing it aren't actually those strains. So um, there is a person named um, uh, Dr. Tim Ivanik. Um, he's done some uh, research on these bacteria. He'd be the guy to talk to about that. He can probably uh, chew your ear off for half a day on just bacteria. And then, so kind of tied in with that then, most people that work with filtration on a large scale, you know, if they work with it professionally, um, 
they would traditionally have a sort of operator role, right? So they maintain it, they work with the filtration to keep their aquarium water clean. Um, but they're generally not there at the start. Very few people are involved in aquarium setups, you know, in the kind of grander scheme. Um, so there's obviously a point where that filtration system will have been switched on for the first time. Could you tell us a bit right. about what's involved with that? So when you switch on a large system for the first time and you seed it, what are the, some, of, some of the things that, that kind of go into that and the things that you as a, as a filtration professional will be thinking about? Right. So what you're talking about is what they call the commissioning process. Okay. And that's when we've come to the end of our installation. Um, everything has been wired up and ready to go. Um, some of this equipment may have been pre-tested a little bit already just to make sure it runs, you know, and then we fill everything with water, right? And generally in the beginning, um, even if it's a marine system, we fill it with fresh water, right? Because salt water does cost quite a bit of money, actually, especially on these large scales. Um, so we fill it with fresh water and that's what we consider a hydro test. And we start everything up, um, different sequences, make sure everything is running properly. So we just start circulating water through the system. And initially in the beginning, we run it during the day and we turn it off at night because we don't want any mishaps over the course of the night when nobody's around. But once we are confident that we run it a few days and everything's working properly, all the components are doing what they're supposed to do. There's no leaks. And if there are any, uh, we fix those, right? Any leaks in that. And a lot of times in that process, we'll have the institution's um, life support system team or maintenance um, staff will have them kind of shadow us a little bit. So we encourage people, even while we're finishing the build, to start looking around, you know, walking through, getting themselves familiarized with everything. But during this commissioning process, it's, I think, particularly important to have those people kind of shadow us so they, they see it turning on, they see what we're going through, they, and we kind of at least I do. I like to talk out loud about why I'm doing things. I have no problem sharing this, you know. And then there'll be, after we get it up and running and it's working properly, then there'll be a formal um, training. And usually, I mean, the bare minimum, if it, this may sound like way too little time, and it actually is, is a, the training can be as short as one or two days, right? Or it could be as much as a month, you know. Um, we encourage the month because, you know, I don't know what anyone's skill level is, um, how, how familiar they are with this equipment or what their background is. And, and actually, I might like to know if that is some of the questions I ask going into this beforehand so I understand people's skill level. So once we do the training, then, you know, they get the keys to the car and then they're off driving. <laughs> and, you know, we, we readily encourage people to call us at any time, ask questions. Don't, you know, unless you really know what you're doing, which is fine. Just no problem to give us a call. You know? So when you're talking about the commissioning and you know, training all of these different teams and kind of not really knowing, you know, what the skill level is, um, you and your company have worked on projects not only in the United States, but really all over the world. And is there a specific project that stands out to you that was, you know, memorable, like just because of uh, kind of, I guess, like the purpose of it, like the overall purpose or something that was particularly challenging that you worked on? I'd have to say probably the job we did in Australia for uh, K2 
Cannes Aquarium. Okay. Um, it was just, I've always wanted to go to Australia. And I don't know if, if anyone knows, Cairns is in the north, northeastern part of Australia. So it's in the tropical area. It's right by the Great Barrier Reef. So we did actually some uh, Great Barrier Reef diving, which was spectacular. And But just being up there, um, even for Australia, it's a particularly challenging place to do work. Um, you know, if monsoons come through, which they had, uh, roads, um, main roads get washed out. Um, it's just a lot different than what we're used to dealing with in the United States as far as the, the supply chain of different pieces of equipment or just things we take for granted in the United States. Um, the United States, if you're willing to pay the, the, uh, the, um, shipping, you can almost get just about anything in a day or two. You know, most things in a day, but right. if it's really large, most maybe three days if you're willing, if you need it. And that's something you become to, you become to rely on. But in Australia, you kind of had to think 10 moves ahead, right? You had to really sit down and look at what you needed and maybe even multiply it, you know, by a 10% factor so that you just aren't stuck with something less. Right. So I think that was, um, challenging the workers there we did hire some local workers and they were all great you know the australian people were great to work with but it was interesting you know it's like it has this western it is i mean you know obviously australia is a modern country right but in the united states we just had this it seems a little more laid back in australia things um, i was able to order things from the united states directly and get them quicker than i was able to get them in australia right that you know cues you in onto some of the challenges. So Australia was particularly challenging, but it was also really gratifying once we got it done because it was a, a, a relatively good sized aquarium that we did the design, uh, supply, and build on. Right, and uh, we thought that it came out really well. So Al, I've got a really strange question for you, and you might not be the person to answer this, but. Uh, I'll throw it at you anyway and see what you think. I'd, I'd love to get your opinion. So we know that fish keeping goes back, you know, as far as the Sumerians. Um, it, we know that it happened in ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and, of course, in Asia, um, that it was primarily done for food fish and then people turned to kind of ornamental fish keeping. But I wonder, do you know where filtration came from? You know, how did we start using it? Because there must have been a point, uh, must have been a point in time at which those first fish keepers kind of consciously created a way to keep that water clean. Right. I think initially, though, a lot of this stuff will flow through systems where they use like natural pools or they made, they created pools, you know, by the shore and there. And so they were all constantly uh, had the the fresh water or the fresh seawater rinsing or, you know, they didn't need filtration basically, right? But I've spoken to some people about this and it hasn't been... Um, I mean, there are people alive and well today that can can tell you about the new tank syndrome. We're only going back, I mean, is it 50, 60 years? I'm not sure, you know, something like that. But I know people that have in in the current, um, oh, they're retired now, but in the current uh, public aquarium sector. And they remember when they first started out that there was the new tank syndrome. And the new tank syndrome was basically that process I spoke about earlier, where it takes up to 30 to 60 days for a tank to get established biologically. 
So within those days, though, you know, ammonias shoot up off the chart. Um, nitrates go up. They go up before they go down. And the new tank syndrome was people experiencing massive fish losses. But then all of a sudden, the tank would start to support life, right? As far as understanding the biological components and the biological cycle, that, that's only relatively recently in, in the timeline you're talking about, right? I think mechanical filtration has been around because people just, that just makes sense, right? You know, there's particulates in the water and you just filter it. Initially, they used to use like real slow sand bed filters, these gravity sand beds. Um, there are still some aquariums around the world that use these gravity sand beds. So basically, it's just these huge beds of sand that you pump water into them and gravity just flows through them by gravity. Protein skimmers as well are something that's come about in our lives, in our lives. Um, something that's very beneficial and used utilization of ozone and all these different things. I mean, now there's a myriad of different um, products out there, but in the in our sector, you know, ozone and these mechanical filtrations and biological are kind of like the staple now. So, um, but yeah, as far as uh, the development of life support system technology, it it's uh, relatively new. And while you were talking about that, it kind of made me think of one more question I want to ask you before we wrap this up. And, you know, you've been doing this pretty much all your life, starting off as a hobbyist, now, you know, working with large public zoos and aquariums all over the world. Where do you think the next kind of big advancement is going to be in aquatic filtration? Like what, what is that, uh, I guess, the next challenge that we have to overcome as an industry? That's a good question. You know, um, a lot of times in the public aquarium sector, we've kind of adopted technology that's been using used in waste treatment, right? Sometimes right. it's good, sometimes it's bad. But as of recent, uh, over the last several years, and I, I had actually explored this back in 2006 with some aquariums is, you know, drum filters, right? Um, so what's so great about a drum filter, right? Some people don't like them, but a lot of people do. It's low head filtration, right? There's all these other things when you talk about sand filters, cartridge filters, bag filters, they require pressure to um, push through and clean the water, which, and so pressure is energy and that requires bigger pumps, more electricity. So low head filtration basically means more, you interpret it to the layperson as like low energy filtration. So I think there's okay. a push to try and make things more efficient. Um, so I, th I see that as um, happening now, and I like that. Um, because typically in the past, I don't think aquariums were kind of on the hook for how much energy they spend. You know, they, they're, right. they're very energy uh, dependent. Um, they utilize a lot of it. Um, and even water, right? So they are resource um, hogs, basically. But I think they're necessary too for you know educating the public, you know, just to understand what the natural um, water world is, you know, and why we need to take care of it, right, and why it's worth saving. But um, I think that's where you're going to see the shift, you know, into um, energy efficiency and um, those types of things, right? Because and I don't know even the big aquariums, right? Uh, how economical is it to make these giant super aquariums? Or, I think the smaller aquariums, if done properly, 
I think are more economical and they still um, relay the message. You know? Well, Al, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, I know Joe and I both really appreciate it and we've learned a lot just in these past 30 minutes talking with you. So if there is anybody that is looking to either renovate an exhibit or design a new aquarium, how can they get in touch with you? Well, what they can do is they can actually call me directly or they can go to our website, which is at www.aquaticexhibits, with an S-I-N-T-L.com. So um, that's how you can get in touch with us. And uh, it's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely link that in the show notes and speak with you again soon. Al, it's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Aquariums Explained is a podcast from the International Zoo and Aquarium Review. We're sponsored by Orca, the creators of the Animal Welfare app, a full-featured web-based aquarium and zoological records and communication system. It's created and run by animal professionals for animal professionals, and you can check it out at orca.com. That's O-E-R-C-A.com. If you've been enjoying the podcast, then why not tell a friend? You could send a link to the show in your mate's WhatsApp group, or you could help us to reach even more people by sharing it on social media. We've got lots of other episodes that you might be interested in. Just search Aquariums Explained on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.